I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing From What Is to What If, which will be published on the 17th of October by Chelsea Green Publishing. One of the very best books I read while researching From What Is to What If was Free to Learn by Peter Gray. Peter is an evolutionary psychologist who taught for 30 years at Boston College as a professor. He is now retired from teaching, but still does research on children's learning and children's development. Free to Learn became the most underlined book out of all the books I read, rich in insight and wisdom and research about why play matters and what happens when we starve our children of it. I was recently in Levan-le-Neuve near Brussels to speak at Festival Maintenant and was delighted to see that Peter and I were on the same bill, albeit a day apart. I was similarly delighted when he agreed to my request for an interview and so one morning we sat in a hotel lobby and chatted about play and the imagination. Later in the interview a group of business people arrive and start chatting nearby so the background noise increases as you'll hear. I started by asking Peter, given the focus in his writings on play, if he might share an experience from his own childhood that for him captures the beauty and freedom of play. Very interesting that you ask that. Uh, in my book, I um, start the first chapter with a discussion of my memories from when I was five years old and we had moved to a new village. And um, I met right across the street a girl who was just a little bit older than me, Ruby Lou was her name. And um, I have such such wonderful memories of our playing together. No adult, I don't remember any adults being around at all. She taught me how to ride her bicycle. She was a little braver and more and wiser than I was. She taught me how to encourage me to climb trees higher than I otherwise would have. This is, it's interesting that just um, Two weeks ago, I met Ruby Lou for the first time in 68 years. <laughs> no way. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting that you asked that question because she's very much on my mind. I, I had been invited to give, this little town we lived in was in southern Minnesota, and I was invited to give a talk there in, um, in not too far from where she now lives. So somebody else, one of the readers of my book, shortly after the book was published, for some reason, he lived in Minnesota, he made it a project to find Ruby Lou. <laughs> and he went to that little town, and uh, of course she had moved away, I moved away when I was seven, she moved away when she was nine, so. But he found somebody who knew somebody who might know <laughs> who she is, and I didn't even, I didn't know her last name even when she was living there, let alone now, her married name. But through the but he through his investigation he found her and then we had some email communication and telephone communication. I was a little nervous at first. Would she remember it the way I remember? Did I make up these stories? <laughs> <laughs> I know that childhood memories are not always completely accurate. Fortunately, she remembered things pretty much as I did. And so when we met, we actually went back to that little town. Her house and my house are pretty much as they were. One of the things that she remembered differently, I, I talk in, my, in the book about how she taught me how to ride a, hill by, a bicycle by starting at the top of the little hill between, on the road between her houses. And she said, 
I don't remember there being a hill there. I think that town was flat as a pancake. So I was a little worried about that when, when we went. Indeed, there is a little hill there. <laughs> Just deep enough to get a little momentum up if you're learning to ride a bicycle. So it was a wonderful little visit to reminisce. And I wrote a blog post, if you're interested, why my most recent post blog post on my Psychology Today blog. And it shows pictures of us as children and a picture of us as 75-year-olds holding hands and skipping across the street. So <laughs> it was a great, it was a great adventure Glorious. to do that. <laughs> so why, why, is, why is play so important and so fundamental? What, what is it that, why is play so important? And also, what, uh, what happens when a culture starts to f forget how to play, to yeah. lose play? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, Play is so important because over the course of natural selection, play is the means by which children learn what they need to know, by which they develop. It becomes really obvious when you look at hunter-gatherer cultures. So one of the things I've done, I've never had the opportunity to live or observe a hunter-gatherer culture directly, but I have done a survey of anthropologists who have. And what I've learned is in these band hunter-gatherer cultures, children play, they're free to play all day long. They're not expected to do any particular work. There's no such thing as anything like school. There's no sense that it's adults' job to educate children. Children learn on their own and they learn in play. They learn by watching, observing, and incorporating what they see into their play. That's how children are designed to grow up. And uh, so they learn all the things that they need to know in a hunter-gatherer culture. And what I have discovered when children have the opportunity to play that much, they also learn everything they need to know in our culture. Of course, children, our culture is very varied. There are different things, different paths in life, and not everybody learns everything about the culture, of course. You, who could? You can't possibly. But if you think about it, children play at all of the kinds of skills that human beings everywhere need. They play at physical skills and that's how they play physically, that's how they develop their physical bodies. They play with imagination, you know, little children imagining that there's a troll under the bridge. This is hypothetical reasoning that they're engaged in. They play with language, which is how they really learn language. Nobody teaches children their native language. They, they hear it, they play with it, and they become good at it. We are the animal that builds things. Children always play at building things. Constructive play is part of play. Children play. We are the animal that has to follow rules. We, don't, we can't just behave in accordance with our instincts and whims. And so no surprise, children everywhere play games with rules in which they're learning how to follow rules, reminding one another about what the rules are. They're creating the rules, varying the rules. So really, uh, and children, more than anything else, no matter what else they're playing, want to play socially with other children. And that's probably the most important thing people have to learn, is how to get along with other people. We are absolutely dependent on other people. How to, how to negotiate differences. When children are playing together, they have to figure out what they're going to play, how they're going to play it. Um, how they're going to balance each other's needs because if one person is unhappy in play that person will quit and then you're left alone so you have to learn how to pay attention to whether your mm. playmate is having fun. So the point I'm making if you think of all aspects of human development 
children develop through play in every realm, their physical realm, intellectual, linguistic, manual, constructive, um, social, moral lessons are being learned in play all the time. And, and play away from adults with other children is how children learn to become adults, where they have to assume the responsibility because there's no adult there taking the responsibility to make the play happen and to negotiate differences and to solve problems. Um, this is how children grow up. This is how children are designed biologically to grow up. And of course, in our culture, we don't allow children to play as much as they should. Or in, in the United States, um, um, play is, um, you know, real play away from adults is almost vanished. <laughs> um, we have this belief that adults, that children are in danger if they're not being supervised and directed and we also have this belief that school is so important and school-like things outside of school so children go from school to adult directed activities and they have very little opportunity to play freely with other children where they're learning all these kinds of learning how to take responsibility and we're and we're seeing the consequences of that uh, the, what would you say are those consequences yeah. how is that manifesting in the culture yeah the well so the data I am aware of is in the United States and I've written quite a bit about this but essentially over the last 60 years pretty much over the course of my adult life um, there has been a continuous decline in children's freedom to play. It's been a gradual decline from the 1950s when I was a kid uh, until today. We've been gradually taking away more and more of children's freedom to just go out and play with other children. Over this same period that we've seen this decline in play, we've seen a continuous increase in all sorts of pathologies of childhood. We've seen increases in depression and anxiety and suicide rate um, and it's not just that people are diagnosing these things differently from before or that they're identifying disorders that they didn't look for before even by there are standard questionnaires uh, clinical questionnaires that assess depression and anxiety um, that have been given to uh, school-aged children uh, over the decades and to young adults and and um, on the basis of those questionnaires, it's estimated that the rate of what would be called major depressive disorder among teenagers and young adults is now somewhere between five and ten times what it was in the 1950s. And, si and similarly for, for what would be called today generalized anxiety disorder, the suicide rate is now at least six times what it was in the 1950s among school children of school age. Um, so you could say now this is a correlation that doesn't by itself prove cause and effect. But to me, it's um, I can make a number of cases for why I believe it's cause and effect. But one is just simply the obvious that boy, life without play for a child, isn't that going to be pretty depressing? Um, there's, a, there's a famous play researcher, Brian Sutton Smith, who died uh, not too long ago, who used to say that the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. Uh, 
And I don't say that because the grammar doesn't work for me, but I would say that you take play away from children and of course they're going to be depressed. Life without play, wow, that is depressing. Life where you're more or less constantly in adult-directed and adult-evaluated things, where instead of just going out to play, where you're free to fail and nobody cares, nobody's, nobody's judging you, and that, that's part of the power of play, is nobody's judging you, so you're free to try new things. You're free to do things that are hard for you and where you might fail because it doesn't count. It doesn't matter if you fail. So, Instead, we've got children in situations where they're always being judged. There are always adults watching them. Always in school, the evaluation has become more and more severe, more and more testing, more and more comparing. Are you, are if you've fallen behind, children get the idea that they're going to be forever lost. They'll grow up homeless if they don't get high grades in school and make it into university. That's really severe pressure on young people. Um, and then when they're out of school, instead of just going out to play with other children, they're put in adult-directed sports where there's, am I going to make the team? Are we going to win the trophy? It's still being evaluated, mm -hmm. still being judged. So no surprise that they're more depressed and more anxious. Mm -hmm. uh, the, other, the, the other thing that I can tell you from data in the United States, as I said, the suicide rate has been increasing. Well, the suicide rate also, which is little known, uh, the, these data have not been published, uh, ex except in a couple of papers, which I've managed to dig out. The suicide rate in the United States for school-aged children is, during the school year is twice what it is during the summer when they're not in school. And it doesn't have to do with daylight, doesn't have to do with winter, because the suicide rate for people who are not in school is actually somewhat higher in the summer than it is during the winter. And moreover, the suicide rate is very high in April and May, are you could say are beautiful months in terms of the sunshine and so on, and yet those are very, they're, school, they're part of the school year, they're kind of stressful part of the school year, where, and that's where the suicide rate is the highest among school-age children. So, the, uh, there was also a study uh, a couple of years ago by the American Psychological Association of, uh, called uh, Stress in America, and they, were, they interviewed people sort of of all ages to assess the degree of anxiety they were feeling, and they determined that teenagers are the most anxious people in America, and that 83% um, of them cited schooling as the source of their anxiety. So it's pretty obvious it's pretty that dumbing, school, is, school is, to be blunt, school is driving many children crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's more or less compulsory unless you have parents who can figure out how to find something alternative and are mm -hmm. wise enough to do that and have the means to do that, but it's, uh, it's more and more, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it is become sort of state-mandated child abuse. Um, little children are increasingly being subjected to long periods of time in their seats, taking homework home, being evaluated, being little. I've heard, I've heard because it's even going down into the preschools, I've heard from parents who say, my child brought home, my four-year-old brought home uh, a note saying that he's academically behind and we have to work on uh, getting him up to his peers. Uh, 
can you imagine that? I mean, this is uh, this has become absurd what we are doing to children, um, and it's occurring worldwide. I I see it in the United States. It's probably worse in East Asia, where I've also spoken. It's probably not quite as bad here, but I think it's been moving in that direction here. <laughs> and if uh, if we take so. John Dewey's definition of imagination was the ability to see things as if they could be otherwise, which I really love. Right. What is the link between being able to play and the be and being able to be imaginative? Right. Well, you know, there's a sense in which all of play is imaginative. When you're playing, you are stepping out of the real world into an imaginary world. And that's really true with all play. You know, you're making, you say, I'm making a sandcastle. I'm making a castle, but I know it's not a real castle, it's a pretend castle. It stands for a castle. We're imagining that. You know, you, little children, especially when they're playing, whether they're playing house or they're playing superheroes or whatever they're playing, they're imagining that they're this character. They're, if I'm this kind of a character, how do I have to behave? <laughs> and they are, uh, this is all, they're, you know, Jean Piaget used to say, used to argue, and a lot of people still believe because he, his work was so publicized that children can't think hypothetically until they're 11 or 12 years old and then they're able to think. But you watch little children and they're thinking hypothetically all the time in the context of play. Well, this is the highest form of human reasoning. This is the kind of reasoning that distinguishes our ability to think from that of other animals. We can think of things that aren't there. That's what allows us to be inventors. It's what allows us to plan for tomorrow. We can think about tomorrow even though it doesn't yet exist. We can imagine what might happen tomorrow and we can prepare for it because because of our ability to imagination. This is a, such an extraordinarily important ability for all aspects of life. It's not just for those people who are writing novels or whatever. You ha we all have to make use of imagination. So, uh, it's, so, so it, would, it would be logical assertion to you that if we're seeing a decline in play in a culture, it will be accompanied by a decline in imaginative uh, decline. Yeah, absolutely. One thing we know uh, in the United States, uh, certainly creative thinking is very closely related to imagination, requires imagination. And there's actually, um, believe it or not, a uh, standard test to assess creativity in school-age children. Torrance test. Torrance test yeah. of creative thinking. And a few years ago, a researcher in the United States, uh, the, since this test had been given for decades to uh, school-aged children of all ages in the United States, analyzed the scores over time. And at least since the mid-1980s, so for the past more than 30 years, the scores have been going down continuously over uh, every, every, uh, every, every year. They're lower than they were the previous year such that the scores, the most recent scores in her analysis, the average score for school-aged children at the time that she published this a couple of years ago was at what would have been the 15 percentile uh, in the mid-1980s on at least one, one of the one of the subtests of this task, creative ability to elaborate on an idea creatively, mm. but all of them were down close to that. That's a significant drop. And at a time when creative thinking is more important 
in the job market than it's ever been before. You know, we've got yeah. we've got computers, we've got we've got <laughs> computers and robots to do all the non-creative things, right? All we need to hire people for is creative things, yes. right? And and yet we've got a school system now that is driving the creativity out of people. It's not that you have to it's not that you have to teach people how to be creative. You can't pe teach people how to be creative, but you can teach them not to be creative by putting by yes. really suppressing the opportunities to be creative. And play is the most creative and imaginative thing that people do. And if children can't play, then they're not going to this this uh, this uh, natural creativity that you see always in little children is going to atrophy over time. I read an article that you wrote in 2012 where you wrote. Well, surprise, surprise, for several decades we as a society have been suppressing children's creativity to ever greater extents, and now we find this, now we find their creativity is declining. Right. How, so you've talked about school. Uh, if you were to, there's a guy who I, who I uh, interviewed for the book who talks about the disimagination machine. He talks about the Donald Trump disimagination machine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the phrase that really leapt out at me, this idea. <coughs> that there are that we live with various different forces around us which are having that erosion right. on our imagination so you talked about the decline of play and uh -huh. the influence of education are there other things that you see in the world today that are having that similar sort of contracting impact well I think really um, I to me the primary things are the decline of play and the rise of um, of a more narrow approach to what's happening in school. So even the more creative things that people used to do in school, writing poems and stories and doing art and uh, so on, um, have, at least in the United States, been gradually taken away. So mm -hmm. children are more and more in a situation where basically they're studying for one right answer, multiple choice tests. <laughs> And that's the least creative thing you could be doing. Um, so, to, I really think that I really think it's the rise of testing and schooling that is the primary source of um, the deprivation of opportunity to be imaginative and creative. That coupled with the fact that even out of school, there's less and less opportunity for children yeah. to just play. <laughs> and what would the uh, what would a um, the restoration of play in our culture look like? What would what, what would the process like? So, if you right. were elected as as as, as president, yeah. uh, and you said, right. "Okay, we're going to prioritize the, right. the the return of play to our to our streets to our culture," where would you start? What would you right. do? Well, I would start. Well, there's two. Th I, I, let me answer it in a little bit different way. I'm actually. Uh, part of two different nonprofit organizations, uh, both of which really are working towards, in different ways, restoring children's freedom and restoring play. So one of the organizations I'm involved with is the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. And so what we are trying to do there is we're trying to make it more possible for children to not go to imposed curriculum-based Schooling, where there's, they can go to, uh, they can, they can do homeschooling freely, uh, including what's commonly called unschooling, which I prefer to, to refer to as self-directed education, 
at home, um, organized at home, it doesn't really mean that they're doing all their education at home, that's kind of a misunderstanding, but that they're in the community and so on. Or to a school like a Sudbury Model School or de Democratic School of one sort or another. We're trying to work to make that more possible so more people can do that. We're working right now with libraries, with the idea of libraries becoming centers for self-directed education so that instead of go to school, you would go to the library. Library is a place where they help you learn what you want to learn rather than tell you what you have to learn. So that's part of what I'm doing and with some success, but still, of course, for some time to come, the majority of people are going to be in the standard public schools. So in this other organization that I'm part of, the called Let Grow, um, we're actually working with schools um, and we're having some effect. So, so, and I s often speak to groups of public school uh, educators and what I try to encourage there is instead of continuously moving in the direction of more and more schooling, more and more testing, let's go in the other direction. That children, that this is becoming wasted time for children. The more schooling they have, the more easily burned out they are, the less they're learning. <laughs> that they, they'll learn at least as much if they're spending less hours at school. Mm -hmm. uh, let's do away with homework for elementary school. And there's a lot of data showing Homework for elementary school students isn't increasing even test scores. There's no reason to do it. Um, so we've had some success. So for example, there's a superintendent of schools uh, on a, in Long Island, New York, has seven elementary schools in his district. He read my book, Free to Learn, and he got in contact with uh, me and the others involved with the Let Grow organization, and he said, so what can I do? What, what, help me out here. What can we do in our schools? And so that school district now for a couple of years has um, made some remarkable changes, which have uh, really made life better for the children at that school. He's done away with homework in elementary school. He's supported in, in the United States, it's legal for parents to opt out of the standardized testing. If the parent says, I don't want my child to be subjected to the standardized testing, um, they have to abide by that. He's supported parents doing that, and so now half the parents in the school have opted their child out of standardized testing. Uh, he's increased recess, and one of the most interesting things that he's done is to institute free play, an hour of free play in the morning before school starts. And it's age mixed, all the grades together. They can use the inside of the school. Basically the art room is open, the gymnasium is open, they can run in the hallways, they can, they've got all this stuff to play with, and the outdoor playground is open. They can go in and out. And um, this was something that I had been, I, I really would like this to occur after school for the entire time between when school ends and parents get home from work. That would be sort of three hours of free age mix play, making use of all of the resources of the school. Well, it turns out there are lots of bureaucratic problems with doing that, and he ultimately wants to do it. But he found it easier to start by having an hour in the morning before school starts. And it's working out better than even I would have predicted. I was worried, well, the children aren't going to want to get up an hour early to get to school, even for free play. Well, it turns out they do want to. <laughs> <laughs> They're making sure that their mom gets them up and yeah, gets them yeah, to yeah. school. 
And I was also worried that um, because they have to have a certain number of teachers observing, I didn't want it to be teachers because I was afraid they wouldn't be able to refrain from being teachers and <laughs> teaching the children how to play or intervening and solving their problems for them. So I said, well, if it has to be teachers, have the principals explain to the teachers. I had a meeting with all the principals where we discussed this. Have the principals explain to the teachers that while you're watching them freely play, you're not teachers. You are lifeguards on a beach. You're just there to save a life if somebody is dying. You're not there to tell them what to do or to worry if somebody looks lonely and needs help or just pick or to solve little quarrels among the children. Let them work that out themselves. And remarkably, they're actually following this. The principals say this, and I was down there observing it on the public television did a little segment on it and they wanted me to be there and so I was there what the kids are doing things that they would never normally be allowed to do even at recess they're, they're running in the hallways they're tossing balls down from a balcony they're they're just having a wonderful time but but they're not destroying anything they're not I mean the only rules are you can't destroy anything and you can't hurt somebody you know and yes. they're following those rules and the older kids with little kids get into a little squabble and some older kid will come over and break it up and tell them what you're doing here what's the problem here and the teachers don't have to do that and they're learning they don't have to do it the if they let it go the kids can solve the problem the kids value this and they want it to occur and so they make sure that uh, nobody is ruining it by <laughs> fighting or by breaking s something. So one of the consequences of this, according to the principles of the schools, is that the teachers are developing a better attitude about the kids than they had before. They're learning that these kids are more responsible than I thought they were, and they're seeing that that even the child who might seem kind of stupid in the classroom seems quite brilliant out there playing with other kids and so they're developing more respect for the children and a different way of talking to them in the classroom and and also the teachers by virtue of being involved with this are becoming a bit more playful in the classroom it's not real play but it's more playful and so Everything's lightening up in the school. Uh, the parents, even the parents who were initially skeptical about all of this, are uh, apparently raving about it on text on their Facebook pages, and other parents in other school districts now want to have this. So I'm feeling some hope about that. That this particular super, unfortunately for that school district, this particular superintendent has become somewhat famous because of what he's done, and he's now been attracted to a bigger <laughs> school district. I'm not sure what's going to happen in this other school, but I'm. I can't imagine that they'll do. They'll stop doing what they're doing because the principals are are so impressed by it, and the teachers too, and the parents. So I think that whoever is now the superintendent there is going to have to um, have to continue this kind of thing. So and what about what about adults? Like, as, uh, can adults learn to play again? And and, and why? How would yeah. it be useful to them? Yeah. Well, usually when I talk about Adults, I prefer to use the word playful, playfulness, rather than play itself. Yeah. Play itself, where you're really doing things just for the sake of doing them. It doesn't have... Um, adults are clearly not going to have as much um, time for such play. And then most, interestingly, among most mammals, not all mammals, but among most mammals, play, as we define it, 
is something you do as a juvenile and you don't do it as an adult. Of course, domestic dogs do it because they've been bred to be juveniles their whole lives, but wolves generally don't. It's not entirely the case that they don't at all, but they largely don't. And, and similarly with most primates, although there are a few primates that play in adulthood. And I've actually written an article about this. What do we know? Why would play extend into adulthood among some primates? And why does it extend into adulthood among humans? And I'm convinced from the data that, that from an evolutionary perspective, for most mammals, the primary function of play in adulthood is to prevent um, dominance, work against dominance hierarchy. When you're playing together, so if you and I are a couple of monkeys, <laughs> adult monkeys, we would be struggling for who's going to be dominant, who's going to be the alpha male between us, right? We would be most primates, if they live in multi-male, multi-female communities, the males are constantly bickering. They can't really cooperate very well with one another, except when they make coalitions to defeat some other male. But uh, those primates where there is play are also those primates where the males as well as the females are capable of cooperating. And um, to do that, you have to suppress the drive to dominate. Well, when even young animals are playing, the play signal that says we're going to play now is also a signal that means we're not going to fight now. <laughs> because if we're fighting, we can't play. We're going to engage in a play fight, but, that, but we're not going to really be trying to dominate one another. We're not going to really hurt one another. That's what that signal means. Interestingly, in primates, the signal is what became the smile and the laugh in human beings. It's completely homologous to that. And so the smile and laugh emerged as a play signal. And of course, in adults, in human beings, it generally, of course, we can fake it, but it generally means, okay, I'm going to be friendly with you at this point. So. I, I've uh, done kind of a study of hunter-gatherer cultures and they are so cooperative and they share everything and I'm convinced that the reason they're able to do that is because they've turned basically all of adult social life into play. Their, their means of judging one another are playful. Their religions are completely playful. Whereas we have these very serious religions where God is a judge that determines our afterlife their religions, the gods, are are kind of like they're flawed. They, you know, they're they they're goofy. They whimsical. They and they and when they're religious festivals, they're kind of playing with the gods and arguing with the gods and so on. And the gods kind of represent nature, which is unpredictable and unreliable. And and and. So they, they have a very different attitude about religion, a very different attitude about uh, how you reprimand somebody who's breaking the rules. And they also do a lot of actual out and out playing, a lot of dancing and, play and, and music and um, games that are cooperative games that, are, that involve the adults as well as the children. So, um, and, their, and their manner of making a living is playful because on any given day, only those people who want to go out hunting, go out hunting. <laughs> and uh, you don't have to hunt. And there are even reports, I've heard anthropologists say, there'll be somebody who decides, you know, for a couple of months, he's, 
he's just hanging around in the hammock or he's going and visiting people in other bands and nobody seems to be concerned about that. There's always enough people who want to hunt. So only those people who want to hunt are hunting. And, and the gathering, the, the gathering expeditions that the women are involved more so than the men, it describes as just sort of like a big picnic. It's very social and they're all out there and they may have their children with them or may not. Uh, it's all very, it's, uh, so there's not this sense. They don't have a word for, for work, meaning labor. They don't have a, even a word for that. Or if they have that word, it means what those farmers do or those coal miners or too. <laughs> it's not what they do. And, and so, so, um, so that's play in the hunter So what I think of in our culture is I think that I think it's much easier if you've grown up playing and you've developed your interests through play and you've chosen your career because this is a career that you know you enjoy doing because this is what you played at as a child. Then it's very easy to see that work even though it's no longer totally play because now the consequences count. And part of my definition of play is that it doesn't matter how it comes out. You're free to fail. You're not so free to fail, uh, at least not consistently, when you're making a, when you're doing real surgery as opposed to pretend surgery, right? So, but yet it can be playful in the sense that you have this attitude. This is, I love doing this so much. I would do it even if I wasn't, even if I didn't need the money. If I won won the lottery and didn't need to do it anymore, that's one way to tell whether your job is a playful job. Would I still be doing it? Am I? doing it because I enjoy doing it and it turns out that those jobs that require a fair amount of skill require some degree of creativity where you're continuing to learn on the job those are the kinds of jobs that people most enjoy and they're also the jobs that people would say this this is like play to me to be doing this so part of it is on how you choose your job how you think about your job I think there are people who can take even the most boring what would seem to be the most boring job and find a way to make it challenging, to make it creative, and to the degree that they're doing that, they feel this is play, this is an adventure, this is, I'm looking for a new way to do this old thing, and as long as I'm still satisfying the requirements of my boss, and you may be even satisfying them more, because in the process of finding a new creative way to do it, or finding a faster way to do it, which makes it more fun, you are also being more productive in the process. So I think that, so when I talk about, about adults, I, I talk about bringing a playful attitude to all of those adult things you do, to your job, to your relationships, more playful in your relationship with your spouse, more playful in your relationship with your children, not taking, realizing that these things that we think of as so serious and so important are, very often not as important as we think they are. <laughs> and if we can recognize that, um, then, um, then we can bring a more playful attitude. We can recognize, I could, you know, the world will continue to go on even if I don't do this, <laughs> even if I fail at this, and life will not come to an end. Uh, that, that attitude helps make life more playful. So my, my last question is that we are now living in the, in the age of the climate emergency and yes. you know, we're seeing this sort of uh, uh, 
uh, amazing, whether it's the school strikes or, or the different movements that are now rising up around right. us. Um, how could we, what role, what role might, um, could I just ask, I just want to ask him, I'm Sure. Just one second. So we're seeing these movements that are coming up and, you know, traditionally activism has been quite sort of not very playful. Right. Would you have a sense of how we could make, how we could bring more play into, what, what, why, why would having a playful approach to activism be important and what might that look like? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I'm not sure I have a really good answer to that, but I think, let me answer kind of it this way. So. Right now, when I look at um, American politics, what, it, what is it that's preventing rational discussion and real decisions about having to do with serious problems like the global warming? And uh, I see how polarized uh, the politicians are in the United States. So you've got Trump and you've got all those Republicans who see it as uh, they're going to lose uh, their in the primary election if they don't support Trump. So no matter what they think, what no matter what they're thinking inside, they're supporting Trump and they're supporting a particular. And then there are the people on the other side of the question, and it's all very very serious, and it's all very contentious and very non-playful, <laughs> right? So. I sometimes think, well, what if, um, what if the people, the politicians who are making these kinds of decisions spent more time playing with one another, as they used to do uh, more often. They would, you know, it didn't matter whether you were, in, certainly in the United States, whether you were Republican or coming conservative or you were liberal Democrat, you would you know, get together with your colleagues as much as they differed from you, and you would get to know them as individuals. You would go out together, you would go to the theater together, you might even play softball together. You would get to know them as people, and you wouldn't be demonizing them. You would, you would be a little, oh, this is a real human being here, and I know this person, and it becomes then easier to listen to one another and to hear one another. I think that right now what we have, we've got the, the climate change deniers in the United States who are simply not, they've closed their minds to the science. <laughs> they've simply closed their mind. They've come to the conclusion that this is all fake science or that this is people who have a particular political agenda or all the scientists are somehow in cahoots because they can get grants that way and so on and so forth. They've got all these rationales and they're not, they're not opening their minds to hearing the other side. And similarly, I guess I would have to say that, um, that the people on the left are not opening their minds to the other side, although I honestly think it's more the people on the right, but that might be my political bias, <laughs> who are not opening their minds. So, but I think that play, what play does, 
is it opens your mind. Play is, leads you to begin to think more broadly. When the non-playful sort of emergency state of mind is a closed state of mind. It's a state of mind that runs along a, a well-worn track for you. The playful state of mind is a state of mind that is willing to engage, think about alternatives, way, new ways of thinking, new ideas. The playful state of mind, so part of what I'm saying is that if people were more playful, they would listen to one another more, including listening to what is actually the scientific evidence you know, available here, uh, as opposed to closing your mind because you think that all of that science, that's part of somebody else's political agenda. Rather. So that's part of it. And then, of course, even in terms of solutions, um, solutions have to be creative. You have to think outside the box. You have to think of things, ways of doing things that are different from how things are being done now. What could we do to solve these problems? And that, that kind of creative thinking requires imagination. It requires a more playful spirit in your thought. You can't, if you take, if you take, you know, there's sort of, there's sort of a two extremes of uh, how people think. There's there's when you are uh, kind of in an emergency state of mind, a highly stressed state of mind. That puts the mind into a very narrow track, thinking of what's the immediate thing I have to do. How do? What do I have to do to get away from this tiger who's escaping from me? That's not the time to invent a new way of dealing with tigers. <laughs> that's that's the time to deal to do the yeah. tried and true whatever it is that is your instinctive that's not natural like way. That's right. So. <laughs> It's when you're running away from pretend tiger in a game, that's the time to try new ways of escaping from the tiger. So we need to think, these, these climate things are in a sense an emergency, but we still need to take a non-emergency mental attitude towards how we solve these problems. We need to take a playful attitude towards how we solve these problems. We need to be able to think outside of the box, come up with new ideas for dealing with this, whether they're technological, whether they're new means of social organizations, whether they're whatever it is. So, um, so if we, I, I do think that, that for so many reasons, we really today need to be more, adults need to bring a more playful attitude to what they're doing. <laughs>